0: Awesome. All right. We are live. Exciting. <laughs> but yeah, I definitely had forgotten that it was gonna be Easter Sunday and just planning. I feel like working remotely makes me forget, you know, the holidays because it's just like, oh well, I'm home anyway, you know. So No, oh, all right, it's all right. I
1: think um especially for those who may not be getting together with their families. It's <laughs> just
0: something
1: fun to do on Easter Sunday. Definitely.
0: Definitely. So we have about five viewers already. Happy Easter to everyone listening. If you celebrate Easter, enjoy the holidays. If you are in the Bahamas, give us yeah. a shout. Let us know where you are, where you're viewing from, who you are, why. Yeah.
1: You- Happy Holly, too. I think Holly is coming up soon. If I, I don't know if I can or not, but I see um, some, you know, some uh, greetings going around. So I think Holly is coming up soon as well, if it's not like today also or somewhere around these yeah. activities as
0: well i have some indian friends so yeah same, same. i had um some indian flatmates when i was living in the uk so mm-hmm. i definitely enjoyed my full of curry <laughs> yeah. oh god yes indian yeah. food is amazing. awesome so we have about six viewers so we're going to get started um like i said this is the easter sunday i don't want to keep you along or any of the viewers who are dedicated to watching this full episode Welcome, everyone, to the Season 3 finale of Siren Sunday's Season (laughs) 3. My guest today is Kelly Ashley Armstrong, and she's going to be talking to us about climate change. What's up with climate change? What is climate change? All the things that you need to know, especially non-conservationists, because it's definitely become such a buzzword, not even in conservation, but just also in the public. Everybody, when they hear climate change, they know that it's something to do with the environment and it's something they should be concerned about. So let us hear a little bit about yourself, Kelly Ashley. Let me know what some of your background is. Why did you pick to study climate change and all of the good stuff? Who are you? Oh boy, love that question.
1: <laughs> so I'll start all the way from the beginning. It was September 1st, 1989, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but um, yeah, so my name is Kelly Ashley Armstrong and I am an environmental scientist turned climate and disaster risk management researcher. Um, that journey would have started, I guess, a little early on in high school. Um, I was really always interested in the sciences, didn't really know where I quite fit. Um, the school that I went to was a small private school and there wasn't really a lot of options for me to really explore the different career opportunities available in science. So. I actually went to Sunland Lutheran School, AKA Sunland Baptist Academy in Prepa Grand Bahama. My family was, you know, from Nassau, Bahamas, but we moved to Grand Bahama, so I finished high school there. And then I came back to Nassau to start the University of the Bahamas. And funny enough, um, my because I didn't know what to study, um, I kind of applied last minute um, because my guidance counselor told me I should apply to COB, like on the East. And I'm so happy that I did because that was kind of like, you know, the impetus, for like everything else that happened. Um, but yeah, I applied to COB and I knew I wanted to do sciences and I thought chemistry was probably the coolest of the ones that I was exposed to. So for some reason, they let me in as a chemistry major and I studied chemistry for three years at the University of Bahamas. Yeah. Um, But it was actually in my second year when I took an elective. Um, it was an ecology class with um, Professor Jacqueline Chisholm Lightborn. Hey, um, that really changed my life because um, her, not just her instruction and her teaching, but her field trips were probably like the highlight of my like college um, tenure. Um, so we did like field trips I think like every other week and we'd like go to the mangroves and visit other national parks and just like some of the, the pine forests out in like the Coral Harbor area. And I just really loved being outdoors and I was like, oh cool, I could do science outside. <laughs> like i don't have to be in the lab. <laughs> to be, you know, the nerd that I really want to be, like, I can actually, you know, like, engage outdoors and do cool field studies, like, in the bush and in the ocean, and I, that was, like, my first, I guess, realization that science was, like, so much more than just, you know, being in a lab or doing some sort of experiment, um, writing notes and, you know, things like that, so Mm -hmm. that was so at the time that I was actually a student at um, COB then, it's now UB, um, there was a Marine and Environmental Studies Institute. Um, and at the time it was actually um, run by Dr. Kathleen Sullivan Seeley, who I'm sure most of us know, and we're very mm-hmm. familiar with. So um, I actually got an internship there because I was interested in learning more about environmental science and ecology. And that was one of the institutes linked to the university that was doing research studies. There wasn't really any um, regular like marine biology classes or anything like that for me to get a little deeper into like the whole like broader environmental science realm of things I just so that was probably my best bet was to try to do some internships with Dr. Seeley which I got to do so that kind of allowed me to dive a little deeper into like the marine biology side of things which is pretty cool because Dr. Seeley had a lot of things going on still has a lot of things going on um so she was um and I think she still is in charge of the coastal ecology lab at the University of Miami so she had a lot of PhD students, um, Bohemian PhD students, switching back and forth, um, helping out with internships and different goings on under the university, as well as you know working in her lab, which is really cool because I got to benefit from that. So at the time that I was a student and doing an internship with COB Massey, we would have abbreviated as, um, at the time, Marine and Environmental Studies Institute, um, I worked with um, some PhD students who were doing studies on lionfish and looking at different um, group respawnings, just looking at the landing. So we sort of were able to couple that with um, trying to establish a fishery database for the Department of Fisheries. So we went out, I think it was like once a month around the full moon every month for the summer that I worked. In. And we just looked at the difference in catch around the full moon of NASA grouper spawnings, And then we sort of tied those landings data along with, you know, if anybody did any lionfish sightings or if they have any lionfish catch, we'd measure them as well. So we kind of killed two birds with one stone, helping like two or three different PhD students with their data for their studies, which was really cool. Because yeah. before that, I never really got to be like firsthand involved in any sort of, research, let alone like, you know, PhD research. So that was very cool and very exciting. And again, I'm like a sophomore um, college student. So that was, that was a pretty big deal. Um, when I put that on my resume, everybody was, you know, that's, that's a pretty cool thing to be involved in sophomore year, right? Of, of okay. college, As a chemistry student doing marine biology, what led you into that. So yeah, so I like to tell that story too. Um, so, yeah, obviously I would have decided, okay, for real, like, I'm going to do environmental science. Um, so at the time, the chemistry thing, um, there was only an applied um, of science degree at chemistry, um, for chemistry at UB anyway. So once I finished the program, I would have transferred all of my credits to uh, Katie University um, in Canada. So I was exploring different options to study environmental science. Um, the Small Island um, Sustainability Study School was in. A thing yet this is back in you know 2009 i think when i left uh cov so I started,
0: sorry i started COV in 2009 yeah
1: yeah so cool so yeah all the cool things happen after i left no i just don't but no i i, I wish i wish right else well, so i would have stayed a little longer but no it's cool um i'm still connected to to the to um to everything that happened and i'm glad i got that experience um but yeah, so I, I, I transferred my credits to Acadia University and I studied environmental science there. And while I was there, I also got very involved in student life. Um, so I guess just sort of being known in the student community, I always got, um, I guess recommended for different opportunities. So the first thing I remember doing um, that was like not curriculum related was going to this youth leadership conference for sustainability. So we had to travel from Wolville Nova Scotia, where my school was, to um, Guelph, Ontario, for this weekend-long conference. And there were only two students um, from each selected from each uh, university in the Atlantic Canada to go mm-hmm. to this conference. And I was one of them. So I was like, what? you know, really excited, super excited. Um, so that was fun, and I got to learn a lot more about um, sustainability, especially from like the circular economy perspective. So that really opened up my eyes a lot more. So that's kind of, I guess, where the whole sustainability thing became like very real for me. So that was really, really cool. And I, and when I went to that conference, I was in the water group. So I got to make a lot of connections about the water system and, you know, people and education and all the different opportunities there are to just sort of close that loop. So that was really cool. And then I came back um, to the university And I started um, getting more involved in the Environmental Science Students Organization. So it's basically, you know, leaders from my cohort um, that were, you know, my fellow um, peers in my program. Um, They had their own little organization. And I became an executive of that organization. And I graduated from Acadia in 2012, in 2012. And then I came home and I was looking for a job everywhere and nobody wanted to hire me. (laughs) So, yeah, so I was like, okay, um, this is real, like, this is, I did not plan for this to happen, like, it came home with all this energy, and I was so excited, and I really wanted to, you know, push some of my, like, ideas about sustainability, and a lot of things just didn't go as happened, so I was really back and forth between um, Grand Bahama and New Providence looking for work, like, I got offered a lot of internships, but at that stage, where I had so much energy, I was like, and, like, I couldn't fathom, like, sitting through something that I wasn't certain was going to move beyond like a few months, you know? Like I wanted to work. I was ready to work, right? So I was like, okay, these people aren't taking me seriously. I'm just going to go back to school. And that's what I did. So as you are aware, um, Bahamians Educated in Natural and Geographical Sciences is a really awesome group that posts a lot of opportunities, beings as we abbreviate it on Facebook. Um, they post a lot of different opportunities for people to um you know expand their career um different scholarship opportunities to go off to school and that's pretty much where i found mine so big ups to leno founder of beings um for starting that group because again that was definitely a huge milestone in in my path yeah um so i so yeah there's opportunity posted there um for the climate and society program at columbia university full scholarship I saw that it was in part sponsored by the International Federation of the Red Cross. So I immediately picked up the phone and called the Bahamas Red Cross Society here to see if they knew anything about it. And they didn't. They encouraged me to call, you know, I guess, like their headquarters or just call the school, right. which I did. And I was actually able to find somebody who was able to talk to me and tell me about the program. They needed, like, you know, all these requirements that I did not have. Um, mm-hmm. But I was like, I'm agree. And I'm really smart. And... You really have the will and the drive, you know. We're like, okay, you know, send in all of your requirements um that you do have and, you know, of course, I had to write a compelling statement for them to uh to accept me into the program. But at the end of the day, yeah, that that worked. Yeah, that worked. so a year later on the anniversary of my graduation from Acadia University, I got accepted to Columbia University for my master's program. So that was a big deal and um super excited um that program was a year long so no breaks it ran straight from august to august and then i was required to do an internship um for the last few months um so that was really cool i studied climate society which is really just studying impacts on climate and society and you do a lot of um courses where there's a lot of flexibility in the program really it's a master of arts program Mm-hmm. So while we would have done things like quantitative methods in natural disasters, it's like, which is like basically a statistics course. Um, you also get a lot of opportunity to do some really cool electives. So I took electives like disasters and development. So understanding the impact of disasters on development and how hard it is for countries to recover from disasters. And I think, you know, courses like that really, you know, understand and I guess sort of with the government and what they're going through now with Dorian and of course the pandemic because I understand the processes that have to be in place, the policy development that has to take place, the regulations that need to be enforced in order for you to really be able to say that you effectively recover from this, right? Yeah. So that, that was really interesting because my professors were also people that have lived through disasters as well so they weren't just talking you know theoretically or, you know, from some academic abstract, right? They lived through disasters. And so that was really insightful. And I got to take some really cool like GIS courses for infrastructure development. Um, and then I also took a class on like ethics and values and sustainability, which was probably definitely my favorite, my most favorite elective. I really bonded with that professor. And we had some very interesting intellectual conversations about ethics and values in development. So that was a really cool experience. and they liked me a lot. So I I got an opportunity to work with them even after I graduated. So during my um, program, I was afforded a graduate research assistant position at the Earth Institute, um, specifically the International Research Institute for Climate Society, which we just abbreviate IRI. So I worked with the financial instruments sector team there um, who is more well known for their index insurance design schemes. but I actually worked on putting together this database on forecast-based disaster preparedness in the Caribbean. So I'd essentially look through all of the disasters in the Caribbean, whether they were the weather related ones, whether they were due to droughts, floods, hurricanes, et cetera, heat waves over the last, let's say 40 years, and just put together a database of that information. And in particular, focusing on which actions were um, driven by forecast knowledge, for example. So if you know a forecast is coming and a disaster manager has to make a choice and they use a forecast to make that decision, like what sort of drove them to, like, put so much trust in these forecast materials and just there's a lot of different offshoots that were related to the work that I was doing. But one of them is also trying to figure out, you know, what makes disaster managers trust or, you know, establish some sort of trust with forecasts and, like, how long do those forecasts, um, you know, windows of of forecasts, like, have to be? So, for example, we usually rely on weather forecasts when we're looking at hurricanes. We say, okay, the hurricane is here. We have this nice forecast cone over the next couple days, and we can say, okay, so this is the path that is going to take. And everybody sort of understands right now like what a forecast cone sort of means. Yeah. But you had a forecast that was, you know, maybe looking at a week-long window or two week long window, like do you have any trust in that, in that uh in that type of forecast product, or maybe even two months? And maybe it's not necessarily for hurricanes, but maybe example like for, for a drought, then obviously, right? Because a drought is a slower onset phenomenon and you can predict it a lot better, and that's understood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if you're just looking at rainfall um, forecasts, like how what makes you sort of trust that forecast? And is it really accurate? And why, why not? And those are things that people actually very diligently work on, like every year. Um, But I digress a little bit. So anyhow, I was doing some really cool stuff, gathering a bunch of data together for lots of different purposes. A lot of the other teams that we worked with at IRI um, never really worked in the in the Caribbean, they worked in other regions like Asia and Africa and um, Mm. Europe. Um, But I was basically doing something um, that was kind of really on the pioneer front, um, for their work in the Caribbean in terms of bringing this database together, and um, sharing it with them so that they understood, I guess, what the baseline was in terms of, you know, weather extremes, and what can we do to help disaster managers based on, you know, looking at the forecast products that they currently use to help them make those very critical decisions, and how we can make them better. Right. So it was cool. And then so I worked with them for a year after, um after I graduated uh, with my master's, and then I returned home. And uh, before that, um, I would have interacted quite a bit um, with a company back at home, who was very interested in me working with them because they knew of the work that I was doing with UB and at Acadia. And we um, Really wanted to work together, but at the time I just couldn't commit because the work at Columbia that I was doing was just, you know, full time. Like I, I really didn't have time to commit to anything else. So when they heard that I was going home, they were really excited and they um, offered me an interview. I sent them my resume and stuff and they hired me right away. <laughs> so I had it like happened. no. Yeah, <laughs> right away, right away. So that was fun. That company was Caribbean Coastal Services um the directors were our scott blackier and carlos Palacios. so shout out to them um caribbean coastal services no longer exists because we would have grown and sort of merged caribbean coastal services along with our sister companies and bahamas and Adametrics into what is now known as Braun limited right. so i still work with that group and it's been five years now going on six years that I've been with the with that group and I was originally hired as an environmental scientist but then they found out about all of my other skills and now I'm a project manager for the group of companies (laughs) Um, but I still still do quite a bit of environmental field work um we have a whole environmental team now I was the first environmental scientist that they hired they were mostly engineers um have um, environmental scientists, we have architects, we have surveyors, we have, you know, a whole support team now. Um, so we can do a lot of technical fieldwork designs um, straight through like, you know, management of construction. We mostly do like development consulting. Okay. So we can you through the whole um, debt process in terms of like environmental approval straight through your Ministry of Works um, permits um, mm. to get you through to construction, which is really cool. Um, so Yeah, so I work with them now and I still do quite a bit of environmental field work. uh, But we have a whole environmental team. Shout out to the environmental team at Braun. Um, And um, for the most part, the only thing that I do that's probably unique is the climate stuff, right? Um, Like you said, climate is sort of like a buzzword these days. And it's not just because of Dorian. It's because like on the and in the global scheme of things, like climate change has been creeping up on everybody. And so we're all talking about it a lot more and um, we realize that we're pretty vulnerable in terms of climate extremes, not just hurricanes, but also things like, you know, our water management is something that we seriously have to continue to consider. Yeah. It's a big one. Yeah. we have to consider moving forward, understanding that even that resource will become severely affected by climate extremes, not just climate change, but even just climate variability, right? Like things like, you know, on a regular basis, depending on, you know, what, climate phenomenon is happening. Um, but yeah, so those are things that we have to look at and the government is is definitely catching on to the hints from the global community. You see, well, from my work, I can tell, right? That they're, they're catching on to a lot of hints from the global community. You see a lot of these infrastructure development projects that come from um, ministries like the Ministry of Works when they send out tenders um, yeah. to do different like consulting work which is the type of tenders that we typically um, respond to with Braun, um, you see them requiring climate risk and vulnerability assessments. And so that's the, yep. that's the type of, of projects that I am typically involved in. And they're typically um, transport infrastructure projects, but still like it the, the, it, the theme is you can see the theme um, is definitely catching on and it's becoming a requirement for projects. So I don't expect it to be much long, before DEP has a similar requirement, like embedded in their environmental impact assessment regulations, for example. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it's just I guess a little bit on my on my path and my journey. Um, and it's really interesting because you know I never really set out to do to be in this niche, um, mm-hmm. but I had pr- a pretty exciting journey to this point, and you know it it
0: continues. Yeah from chemistry to climate change. Why not? (laughs) For our viewers, because like we said, you know, climate change has become this buzzword. And I oftentimes think that people don't really understand, you know, what that means. Because we shifted from saying global warming, which of course was wildly inaccurate to say. So can you just quickly for the audience, and even a bit for me, what is climate change anyway? What is it? Sure. So based on our industrial
1: activities, which are mostly fossil fuel based, we have increased the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere to the point where the layer, the natural layer of greenhouse gases in our atmosphere is becoming thicker and thicker over time, which is not healthy because the thicker it becomes, the more heat it traps, yep. which is why we at first called it global warming, right? Um, but the reason why global warming, we can't say global warming um, all the time, right? Um, the impacts of global warming is climate change because some places aren't necessarily going to get warmer. Some places are actually going to get cooler, right? Mm-hmm. And there are lots of other different impacts because of that. Um, due to what we call um, teleconnections, um, that's what we uh, a phrase that we use to describe the relationship um, between the ocean and the air. to atmospheric teleconnections the ocean absorbs a lot of heat from the atmosphere and so we see a lot of impacts in our oceans as a result of that as well of course in the bahamas the top or surface layer of the ocean has always been very warm um but the deeper you go obviously the cooler you get and that's provided a lot of relief from marine species from heat stress. um but when you think about sessile organisms like corals that can't move that top layer of the water is becoming hotter and hotter as the air becomes hotter and hotter and they can't swim to deeper waters like the fish can to get relief from heat stress. Yeah, I like, listen, I love that term, teleconnection. I was like, teleconnection, okay. When you said it, I was like, teleconnection. Yeah, yeah. Trust me, from the first day I heard that word, I've used it ever since. I like that word or phrase rather, atmospheric teleconnections. So, um, So, yeah, like, for example, our corals, they become bleached, right? Because that's what they do when they're stressed out by the heat. And unfortunately, just like a person, if you keep getting sick, you're really vulnerable to death, right? Because, like, how often can you become sick and ill before your body just, you know, you don't really have much defense anymore? Your body just becomes weaker and weaker until, unfortunately, you die. So that's what we're seeing happening with a lot of our corals. Reef death is becoming, um, unfortunately, observed more and more. And um, that's not good, because we know coral reefs provide a host of environmental benefits, cultural benefits, um, economic benefits. And yeah, it's it's a real serious thing. It's very saddening when you really think about it because, you know, you have to also think about like, what's the alternative being in a small country from the Bahamas. We know, we don't have a lot of industrial activities um, even though a lot of our habits and practices sort of contribute to the issue yeah. Um, because, you know, we depend on a lot of imports and a lot of our imports are fossil fuel based products like our plastics, which thankfully are bad now, but, you know, still there, you know, we are really, heavy on like, you know, our fossil fuel ran cars, right? Everybody has a car. Like you can pull up to the average house where, you know, children probably still live with their parents and they're like six cars parked in the yard, right? Like we don't, we're not being on like ride sharing and things like that. But those are things that can help, right? Reduce our um, emissions because they are calculated, right? Like we submit reports regularly to the UN about our impact on this global phenomenon.
0: I don't but, think people know that, you know? I think a lot of the behaviors feel like, you know, we are an island, right? When it comes to the global scale on things, like who are we really being held accountable by, you know? And, and it's funny that you say that. We're sending reports to the UN, like.
1: Yes, I, we, uh, yeah, we're a member to a few of the conventions and treaties, including the UN Convention Framework Convention on Climate Change, and as a member of that treaty, we have to produce reports on these things. Um, but again, we we understand that even though our contribution is not great, we unfortunately suffer most of the impact. Right? We right. unfortunately suffer most, or and if not most, definitely the worst, right, of the impact because we're an island country. We're super vulnerable, not just our economy, but just because of our like physical location, right? just right. because of our topography, we're low lying, um, we're small right um, our water resources are extremely vulnerable because they're also very close to the surface. So when we have you know inundation, whether it be from storm surge, um, our water fields our, our aquifers typically get contaminated with salt water. We call that you know salt intrusion. Um, so yeah, we have to be very careful about how we plan for sustainable resilient um, development. Understanding that climate change is just going to be an issue as years go by that's going to become worse. So we have to prepare now.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the things that a lot of people always tend to ask, which I'm going to ask you now, I don't, and sorry if it's like throwing you off your game. I know a lot of people wonder can we reverse? You know, like, is there a way to reverse what we've done? Or at this point, is it about trying to slow down? The progress of where we're already at and you know delay what is inevitable basically
1: mm-hmm. like when you say reverse you mean reverse the impacts or reverse in terms of like go back and do th- like things that are more sustainable in terms of you know our habits and practices like things that we weren't doing before industrial times like just
0: don't do them in. See, well, and you know what, I guess so both, right? But initially, yeah, that whole reversing the impacts, like now that there's so much greenhouse gases, can we take greenhouse gases back out the air? Like what are some of the things that we can do to, you know, because what, climate change mitigation, right? Like to now start like lessening the impacts that are already in place. Right.
1: So I guess yes, yes is is the short answer. We can unfortunately i'll just start with the bad news first
0: there's a lot of
1: climate change in the pipeline which means that based on the things that we've already done to our environment yes lindsay it is coming restoration is key um but yeah based on what we've already done the harmful impacts that we've already done to the environment there's a lot of things that are in the pipeline a lot of impacts that are in the pipeline um that we won't be able to reverse because it's already done right in terms of the amount of greenhouse gases we pumped into the atmosphere it doesn't mean you know because we pumped out you know because we drove our car from east to west today um you know that emissions are gonna reach the greenhouse gas layer tomorrow and we're gonna have you know coral bleaching in two weeks it's not that right it takes a lot longer right like the whole impact of climate change um in terms of where we are now like this is over hundreds of years right industrial times are like from 1800s right so this is hundreds of years of damage um and it's only gotten worse as the population has increased and we've let unsustainable development just sort of run for so long only in like maybe the last what 50 years, I'd say, we really started to become super conscious about, yeah, right, there's like in these impacts, right? And especially the severity of them, right? And don't forget, there's like a synergy in terms of the negative impacts as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's only like really within like the last 50, 60 years, we really become super conscious, like with the green movement, um, about like the impacts on the environment based on these practices. So you got to give us time to fix it, right? If it took, you know, in terms of our realization of the of the problem, it's only been within the last 50 years. But we've been doing these things for the last 300 years, right? So give us some time to fix it. We're working on it. I won't say as far. I won't go as far to say that we're doing the best that we can, but we're making progress. Um, and yes, there are a lot of things that we can do. Lindy touched on a great one, right? Restoring our habitats mm-hmm. is definitely key. Um, Especially in Bahamas, where, you know, a lot of our habitats are very sensitive, um, but they're also very good at protecting us from some of the worst impacts of climate change. For example, I really love to highlight, and I think, mangroves have recently been officially put on the new list of protected trees and plants.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, mangroves are awesome, as everybody knows, right? Um, Yeah. Right? and I love to highlight the story when people ask about like restoration and hurricanes and things like that. Um, the story of the two fishermen from Andrus who sought refuge in the mangroves um, in the keys between Abaco and Grand Bahama, they were without Dorian in the mangroves. All right, mm-hmm. two of them, nothing else. All right, they had nothing else. They were on a fishing trip. They heard bad weather was coming. It wasn't safe for them to try to turn back and go to Andrus. So, they wrote it out in the mangroves, okay? Mangroves for two human lives. Those are two souls that were saved in, like, just for them seeking refuge in the mangroves. Yeah. The truth is, their wives were so afraid because, of course, they heard about all the devastation in Grand Ham and Abaco from Dorian they couldn't find them. They hadn't heard from them and they returned home safely. So, that's amazing because we always think about mangroves in terms, and, you know, we think about their physical impacts on the shoreline. And we know that you know they're able to um help with a lot of the break up a lot of the wave energy which protects us further inland but yeah. they all protect human lives and that's like that's so cool like i i wish that was a bigger story that it was but i love to highlight that one that's just one example right right and i've had a few conversations lately about that because i think that also highlights um something instinctual in them where you know, our ancestors wouldn't have had the type of infrastructure that we have now. Homes made of concrete and all of this stuff where we like to typically hide away in when there's a threat of a storm. All they had were caves and mangroves and they knew that they were safe places to be during a storm. And I think those are the type of things that we need to continue to rely on. So we have to do a little bit better at passing down this traditional knowledge in these non-traditional ways that we keep evolving, right, in terms of how we communicate and interact with each other, and share information about what is proper or adequate or appropriate disaster risk management. Because if you don't have, you know, and especially now where like, people are still suffering from, like, you know, homelessness even, right, after Mm -hmm. Dorian. that is a very important thing like hurricane season is not far away may to sorry not may think about june. wet season june to november every year like not I, don't another month month. Year. I don't think most people realize that hur- we have hurricane season half of the year every year right that's very important information because if you're living in your car where do you roll up to in the middle of a storm you know like i'm not saying don't go to a shelter right i'm just saying you have other options because even shelters can become compromised right yeah. it's it's good to know that your natural environment is able to protect you if you need to right so we have to make sure that they're healthy and a lot of them are not so that's where these restoration projects um come in that's why they're so critical okay.
0: anyway, I see some questions coming in I'm gonna. Yes, um, about water quality and freshwater systems. How can sea level rise, storms and climate impacts be mitigated? Thinking of Grand Bahama, and how can we build back better to protect freshwater? When Mallory lived there, she used to drink the tap water through a Brita filter, but a lot has changed. Water is life. So what can be done? How can we build back better to protect the freshwater resources? Sure. So one of
1: my mentors um, is um, John Boleg, um, who is a long longtime uh, consultant for the Water and Sewage Corporation. Shout out to John. Um, and I know that he's worked on a lot of different projects um, where we're trying to make our water systems a lot more resilient. Obviously, this wouldn't apply to Grand Bahama because you have the Grand Bahama Water Company um, yeah. in Grand Bahama. But of course, um, if, it, if it works and it's applicable, then by all means, this is something that we should scale up, right? right. Um, but one of the things that they did was They actually raised the elevation of their wells Um, and they got some funds from multilateral organizations, development organizations to assist with that project. Uh, So here in Nassau, that's one of the things that they did was elevate the wells so that if the area where the wells were became inundated, they didn't necessarily have to become flooded or contaminated where the water actually went down, the salt water contamination actually went down the well to infiltrate it. So that's something simple, but again, it's super critical to protecting our fresh water resources. And then again, even when you think just about the installation of those wells, especially if it's in a low-lying area, which most of the Bahamas is, right, you would want to elevate that area and make sure the mouth of your well is also elevated. So I think when we just think about accessing the resource and elevating the water isn't just about the flooding, but it you think about the intrusion, it gives it a lot more time um, to trickle that water down naturally through the soil and other um, matter on the ground into that resource. So you protect it for a little while longer as well, right? So that's just one simple thing. I'm not a water systems expert, but I know that, you know, things are definitely, definitely happening. Mm-hmm. And uh, but, and that's just in terms of the the natural freshwater resource. But we also have to get a little bit more serious about conserving our water. Like I know again from the perspective of water and sewage um and just hear them talk about their issues with um our consumptive behaviors with water. Like we act like it's a free resource because it was for a long time like the water and sewage corporation didn't really well they don't charge um consumers like full the actual price for water. The yeah. government subsidizes it extremely heavily. Mm-hmm. So because we're not paying a high water bill, because we're not paying uh, actual water bills, because the government is paying a pretty hefty part of it, we don't really appreciate it. Of course, that's environmental economics. I don't know if, you know, just a, paying a higher bill would make us appreciate the resource a little bit more, but for those of you who may not know that, and you can appreciate that connection, maybe you will, right? Because I didn't know that. Yeah. Actually- no oh, idea yeah water is a scarce resource like that's not mm-hmm. pretend it. it is and it mm-hmm. takes a lot of energy to clean that water um yeah. right um and prepare that for you to make sure that it's safe for you and your family to eat to drink to bathe right because don't right. forget isn't just through um the food we eat or or drink but also like you you take a shower every day like that's that's your skin and you know and you and you, you notice very quickly when you have issues with your water quality because your skin will break out in no time, right? So it's very important um, for us to conserve that resource as best as, as best as possible as well. So yes, climate change mitigation um, is important, but also realizing that our consumption habits may not be the best. I know, for example, like when I used to do internships when I was in school with, um, when I was in college with Dr. Seeley, when we do like field work with her, like she wouldn't allow us to bathe in hot water. <laughs> And we can only take like five, 10 minutes, max. Like in yeah. back in the days, like I had hair down to my hip. So if I had like a regular shower, five minutes, if I had to wash my hair, I thankfully was graciously given 10 minutes, but I couldn't use hot water.
0: Like we were but, very conscious about those types of things. Definitely. Um, yeah, you have to be, um, but yeah, I am being mindful of the time. We do have two more questions actually so here how how best can we as a small nation help our larger neighbors to understand and care more about the impact climate change has on us here in the bahamas
1: yeah so no i definitely think that's that's important too um definitely i'd say i guess from a political standpoint let's all continue to encourage each other um in keeping with our nationally determined contributions so those are essentially the promises that we made to the un about how we're going to combat climate change as a country, right? right? But we can work together on a lot of those contributions. Um, and there are a lot of opportunities for us to um, work together with other countries, especially in the Caribbean region, right? Um, right? We tend to operate a lot from a position of weakness, um, but we there's a lot of strength. in. And I, 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 I'm alluding to a, a certain article recently in the paper that said CARICOM is not dead, and it's not. Because a lot of my research actually involves me physically traveling from New York when I was um, at Columbia University studying and working two different islands in the Caribbean to personally interview disaster managers about best management practices and mm-hmm. things that use triggers um, that have helped to save lives, right? And there's a lot of knowledge there, there's a lot of knowledge there that's not effectively captured and, sh- and shared um, throughout our community and um, things like that. I think. More conversations like this, right, Lashanti? More conversations like this need to be had um, across sectors, right? Because one sector doesn't have the answer for their resource either, right? It's going to take us realizing a lot of the interconnectivity between our resources and our systems, just like an ecosystem, right? Um, when When you have a particular habitat, Um, operating. You don't just look at one particular species. You have to see how that species is interacting with the abiotic and biotic resources in its community to figure out, you know, what it may need to thrive, not just survive. You want it to thrive. So we have to work. We really have to work together and encourage each other and share lessons. And um, I think that's probably the best and easiest way to to do that. Um, We have to share more. Like a lot of us, we tend to withhold a lot of knowledge and data and resources and that's not cool it's not cool at all right like we pay, for a lot of, we pay for a lot of resources um and still don't get to a place where you know if we actually were able to like pick up the phone and call somebody um who had that information they would just willingly give it to us if it was in their power to um so we have to, i think we have to revert back to to to, to things like that um, just being able to communicate with each other a little bit more openly and willing to share data and other resources is going to be extremely, really helpful. Yeah,
0: and there's Karen agreeing. Okay. <laughs> so I do see. Uh, there's another question, but before I get to that one, because I had a similar question for you. Um, one of the things that I wondered, or maybe mm-hmm. I can tie it in, because this person's asking, how can people get involved, right, with with companies mm-hmm. and organizations who are doing this type of work? Um, how can someone like myself get involved with with or directly like companies or organizations that work to raise awareness or counteract the impacts of climate change? Any advice for persons interested in a postgraduate education in environmental science or management?
1: Absolutely.
0: Lots of advice, man. Like, fortunately, yeah. because I've been,
1: first because I've been able to work with so many amazing environmental scientists, mm-hmm. um, I guess other like professionals in the community here in the Bahamas, there are a lot, there are a lot of opportunities actually, right? To get involved in that type of work. Um, there's a lot of things going on, not just like directly, but also indirectly that tie in with um, climate change. Um, so I can start with some of the indirect ones. A lot of our nonprofit environmental organizations, whether it be Bahamas National Trust, The Nature Conservancy, Friends of the Environment, like name it, like they're doing, they're all doing something. Um, and they have programs that are being run that are funded by international agencies or just. Nationally and internationally, um, persons um, that will tie into their themes of climate change and just overall sustainability and conservation. So, if you're interested in working with them, I definitely say reach out. Sometimes opportunities are not always advertised, but it's always good to just make sure that you're on their radar. They understand what your skill set is and just shoot your shot. You know what I mean? When yeah. opportunities come out, you'll be the first on their list, right? Um, but yeah, definitely reach out to those organizations that are always working on something very cool and interesting if you are really you know interested in that type of work um and um, also like volunteer like if you have the time, of course, um yeah. you don't necessarily have to jump right in 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 terms of like working with them. there may not be the opportunity for that at that time, but again, yeah. if you're familiar with you and your skills and they understand the value that you can bring, as soon as there's an opportunity, you'll be the first one in line, right? Yeah. So, yeah, definitely volunteer, definitely. Um, I mean, give them your money too, right? Like they need money. <laughs> give them your money. Totally. Too.
0: <laughs> Not only with your time, but with your finances. Yeah.
1: You need money for projects. PIMS as well, right? PIMS, I mean, there there are so many other um, organizations all across the Bahamas. CC Bahamas, right? Cat Island Conservation Institute is probably the newest one on the block. Yeah. Exactly, Karen. This is what I'm talking about. Exactly. Um, so, but yeah, they're all doing really great, amazing work. Um, and then we all know um, CC Bahamas um, is also run by, you know, young marine explorers. Um, they do a lot of community and citizen science trips um, mm-hmm. and activities. And I saw recently in a recent article, they're going to start certifying community scientists, which is amazing because I'm huge on certification. So make sure that you, you check pay. out some um, yeah, it's really important for your, like, professional development, right? Um, and it's easy for people to recognize you like that. But, yeah, man, like, I've worked at BNT um, before I I had, like, a little stint between um, being at the College of the Bahamas and Acadia University. I worked at, at the Palmas Hospital Trust as an education officer, assistant education officer, and I got to travel with them and help out with workshops and family islands at an amazing time. I was only there for, like, two, three months. But amazing experience. Um Definitely. yeah, absolutely. And um I've worked with a lot of local professionals on different projects with Caribbean Coastal Services. Yes, exactly. Hey Lindsay. <laughs> That's where I met me at, at BND. Same. So, yeah, exactly. So yeah, I and mean, then it's funny enough too, because like most of um the environmental team at Braun also has very strong connections and relationships with Obama's National Trust too so I mean just as a environmental professional like you kind of might get looked up and down if you don't have a relationship with BNT and you don't have to work there but like if you don't have a relationship with anybody there like that's like number one thing to do make sure you have a relationship with BNT. there's a lot of great resources there pers in person right. just you know projects programs mm-hmm. yeah but that's cool um and then also what what we can do like i know it, it seems like such a daunting thing because climate change is like you know this global existential issue that everybody has to figure out how to deal with but again we don't have to do with it on our own there's a yeah. lot of resources out there um, we can synergize synergize a lot of you know activities that we're doing um, for example like one of the things that i'm involved in right now um, i was selected to be a climate ambassador by the global youth climate network for the bahamas so that's cool and fun we're actually preparing right now a position paper on climate action so this is basically like young people from all over the world are putting their voice forward in terms of what they think the world should be doing in terms of climate action and while that may um sort of help to build on you know again some of the nationally determined contributions from other countries it's also going to come from you know just their own ideas as well which i think is awesome and amazing because we've proven over time that you know we we understand the issue and we understand what needs to to happen in order for it to be addressed and we understand that in terms of the political movement it's not fast enough and so we're putting our voice there and we're demanding a place at the table and we're going to take charge of some of that responsibility understanding that you know the older generation is passing this buck on to us but we don't have to accept it as is we can actually do something about it but just in terms of like individual and community action like some things that you may consider so small and insignificant really aren't right so just for example thinking about on a daily basis for example like i live out east when i work out west right um i really have to consider because like i'm very conscious about like my carbon footprint right um when i move in the day right from my house and i know i have to go west and return home like i make sure i'm not like driving up and down nassau all day like I'm going to make sure, like, I have, like, any stops as I go out west. They're either on my way to work or on my way from work. And, like, when I get home, like, I'm not coming back out. Right. I'm not. Like, so just thinking about my personal carbon footprint, right, because my car is running fossil fuel. When I go out into the field and, you know, your phone dies uh, or some other small device, maybe, like, a handheld camera dies, I tend to travel with a small like it's a like a cell phone sized um, solar charger and I would use that while I'm in the field because I'm exposed to the sun all day right to charge my mobile devices um, instead of using electricity so that also helps because I get to use it while I'm in the field even though my battery is dead because I'm able to charge it right away but then again I'm also not using electricity from some wall outlet at the you know wherever the places that I'm staying I'm Helping to cut my carbon footprint again by using renewable energy, yeah. Um, and then even food choices. So as part of my um, commitment as well, being again a little bit more conscious about my carbon footprint, for the duration of my climate ambassador program, like I, yeah, yeah, Miss Graham, I'm like I, I'm not eating any red meat. So nice. I understand that red meat takes a lot of energy to produce and process for our consumption. So mm. I'm having withdrawals. So I'm not gonna lie. right? Yeah. I, I love a good juicy steak and I love a good burger, but I am committed to not eating any red meat. Oh, and curry goat, yeah. But I'm I'm committed to the one. Um, yeah. I'm committed <laughs> to eating Any red meat at least until the end of October. But I may make I may make that a larger commitment because you know I am especially as an ambassador, right? Like yeah. I have to be an example um and then just as a community like part of it is also understanding like your community's vulnerability like if you live in an area that's floods like when when it rains for like 10 minutes you may want to seriously think about what you need to do to further protect your community because if you have a major flood event or a hurricane and you're impacted by storm surge like what will your community look like after that you know so I definitely recommend people to get together, especially if you already have some sort of association established in your neighborhood. You can use that um, to build some sort of um, responsible climate action activity. You can plant trees in your community. Um, if you have a park, um, you can call up Bahamas. Uh, is it Public Parks and Beaches Authority? I'm sure they would you to plant some trees on the park, you know, just organize yeah. an activity with them. Um, and. Um, also, you may want to think about um, like your storm drains. I think another lesson that uh, stood out from my interviews with disaster managers across the Caribbean is that we don't clean our storm drains as often as we're supposed to throughout the year. They get um, clogged up by a lot of debris that's you know from the street. And then mm-hmm. when you have flood events and storm events, that debris is obviously um, hindering the water from collecting into the storm drains. And that's why a lot of our communities end up being flooded. So,
0: that may be something worthwhile yeah. to do. Yeah. Yeah. There's that one bit on downtown that floods, and it's always because yeah. the storm drain hasn't been cleared out. And, and it's always so frustrating having to just drive after like heavy rain because you never know which area on the island is flooded. Exactly.
1: Yeah, exactly. Precisely. Oh, yeah. So, things as simple as that is putting our storm drains on a regular maintenance schedule. But there are private companies that will come and clean it as well. So maybe that's something that you know your neighborhood association needs to organize and then obviously as well you could also think about preparing an adaptation plan there was this organization called um carib save i don't think it exists anymore but it's tied to some to the the caribbean community as well Caricom as well but their resources yeah. are still available online they've developed um climate change adaptation plans for communities and Abaco, I think a community in Abaco, and I think there's another uh, family island community. But that's something that you can do together. And if you need guidance, you can, of course, call me. But I'm gonna, I'm I'm, I'm sure like that, you know, the, those are the types of things that we can work together on with people like the Bahamas, right? Um, but that'll yeah. be a fun exercise that I'm sure I can get, you know, a lot of my other fellow environmental scientists involved in. Um, and we can come up with a, with a plan for your community to help protect it against some of those those impacts kind like of about climate change but the variability right um climate change impacts are going to be a little bit more slow onset when you think about things like sea level rise right but yes the imp- due to the impacts of climate change we are seeing more frequent stronger hurricanes we are also seeing drought right that's another creeper um that people yeah. may not be so aware of which is why noted before we have to protect our water resources as well and be a little bit more mindful about how we consume them but yes these things are always going to be relevant. Um, so you know let's let's start working on them. For sure.
0: So what would it what would be your like if you were to give like Bahamians or even just youth that one liner or two liner, what would be the key advice that you would give them so that they can I guess start the change right In, in helping the country work against climate change? What would be that one piece of advice you would give?
1: Do it afraid.
0: Can you elaborate? Do it it afraid.
1: Climate change is scary and a lot of people are sort of, you know, their reaction is is, is like frozen when they really begin to understand and appreciate the impacts and the severity of the impacts and what that means for us as a small island country. That means we're going to lose a lot of our resources, a lot of our cultural resources, a lot of, you know, the benefits and things that we're used to. and. How do we mitigate against that? Because, again, when we look at our political leadership, like that changes about every five years, but climate change is like a hundred year problem, right? Um, So we can't, I'm not saying our leadership isn't doing anything about it, but I'm saying we shouldn't look to them ultimately to solve this problem for us. We have to mobilize ourselves to make the change if we're really invested in protecting our communities and so there is something that you can do about it um but again there's strength and unity in in numbers right so let's get together let's come up with some plans for our communities and yeah we have to do it afraid like being frozen by fear is not an option because we don't know when the next dorian is gonna hit right yeah so we just have to do it afraid there's inaction is not an option it's not an option. So we have to do everything we can
0: now that's that's actually really good advice and i think there are a lot of people who aren't afraid yet but at least having conversations like this can spark the awareness right like to get Mm -hmm. people aware that this is not just some distant far away thing like like you always say not always like everyone's been pointing out right dorian is a classic example of how we are gonna we're on the curve of starting to get these type of storms that Mm -hmm are awful and if we don't try to start making steps then our children grandchildren and their grandchildren are going to start suffering more storms like this so by making small steps to big changes in your daily life you can help everyone the country mitigate against climate change so i definitely i'm so happy that you took some time out on your beautiful easter sunday to chat with me definitely have to bring you back for some more stuff because you were starting to give some really good advice that i think you probably have a lot more (laughs) So we definitely need to have one on like practical, sustainable living tips to help mitigate climate change. Um, but yeah, this is, this is great. I'm really happy that I got you here to talk about some of this stuff. And I don't think there are any questions. Um, nope, I don't see any questions. Did you have any other final thoughts that you wanted to give to our audience?
1: So I just wanted to just let everybody know I am working on some projects with the government right now um, and there is some progress being made with Dorian in terms of the recovery. I'm asking everybody to be patient because I know where everything was sort of wiped out in one in two days we sort of want everybody to work with the same urgency and it's not that we're not it's just that there's so many things that have to be put in place appropriately right to make sure that God forbid, if we have to experience something like that again, we're in a better position than we were before when it happened, right? Mm-hmm. So just reminding everybody to please be patient. These things take time, but policies are being developed, right? Regulations are being put in place and we are going to, you know, quote unquote, build back better. Like yeah. we're committed to that, you know, for sure. Like my team at Braun, we're, we are committed to that and we're going to we're gonna do our part to contribute and make sure that the Bahamas is prepared.
0: That is awesome. So thank you so much again. You know, you were my season finale, and I think this was a beautiful episode to have as that season three wrap-up. So yeah, thank you for taking some time out. Thank you to everyone who's been watching and tuning in all season, and even for this last one, because you could be doing anything else today, especially today, but you chose to be here and watch this episode with us. So thanks for tuning in. And remember, it's not ocean. I'm I'm like messing with my thoughts now. The ocean isn't what separates us, is what connects us. I will see you all back here again in about a month for season four, which will be a special edition. So stay tuned and keep up with all of the great things we are doing. Like some cleanups are coming out. You know, April is Earth Day is coming this month. So this is Earth Month. So stay tuned for a lot of great things that myself and Kelly Ashley will be doing and have a wonderful Sunday.
1: Bye. Bye, everybody.